We're on page three, and we left off last week talking about Abram. And it is, to me, a very, very remarkable uh, trait of Scripture that you can find something so, so thoroughly detailed in a place where you wouldn't expect to find it. And Scripture does that. That's why we have to study the Word, you know. I've often thought that it would be nice if, if the Bible had been written like a theology book was written. You'd have a subject and have everything that we're told about it. And Kevin, it would be so easy for his brother if we could do that, wouldn't it? We could just say, now turn the page. But, you know, we have to search Scripture to find things. And in, in, in the life of this man, Abram, we find out a lot about salvation, even some things that you don't see clearly defined in the New Testament. But when you look, you see, yeah, it's part of what happens when a person gets saved. And so in thinking about Abram... <clears throat> He does illustrate some important things that deal with how a person comes to know God in the Old Testament and really in the New. Because the first point we left off last week with the, with the fact that Abraham illustrates, on page, on page two, we talked about how Abraham illustrates that God selects people apart from any human merit or works. Now, we know that from the New Testament, and we see that in this particular man. Because if anybody had faith... And the initial promise and the initial dealing with God that goes from Genesis 11.31 through 12.1, if anyone showed even the slightest bit of faith, who was it? Was it Abram? If you remember the scripture, it was Terah. Terah at least responded, at least in part. And Terah took him, although he didn't do it right, but at least he took him to go to the right place. Now, he took everybody along with him. He took himself. He took his, another member of the family but he at least showed some degree of faith. So you can't say in Abram, and we're not saying, as it was said before, we're not gainsaying this man. The modern trend seems to be that you find somebody that's a hero and you have to tear into him and, and find everything nasty about him so that he's really not a good guy after all. He's really just a bum, you know. Somebody once said that the difference in most of the shows anymore between the good guy and the bad guy in a cop show is there's two bad guys. One of them has a badge and the other one doesn't. And that's, and that's sometimes when you, if you've, I haven't watched much TV like that in a long time, but I do remember seeing that even back in the 90s they were doing that sort of thing. So, but Abraham had, Abram as he was known at this time, he had no works that could commend him to God in any single solitary way at all. So, now Abraham's salvation also illustrates that God uniquely will prepare individuals, making them willing to listen. Now, if you go back in your own life and think about it, if you can remember when you were saved, anything connected with it, there were probably some events that, were, that led up to that that were, were unique to the time, that were unusual circumstances that, looking back, you can say, God prepared me and God tailored me to come to the point where I would respond. And that's true, but with Abram, you can see a, a vivid illustration of it, and it's, it's, a really, it's, a, it's a terrific illustration because of the detail that's here and the things it tells us about the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to resist with, great, with a great deal of difficulty because I love teaching on the Rephaim and the Nephilim, but they're actually going to pay the, the giants from Genesis 6 are going to play a part in the salvation of this man, Abram. And it's an unusual way it's done, but it makes it such a, such a phenomenal story. And really, I think sometimes with kids' stories, one, one speaker said at the, at the Bible conference in, in uh, Forest Grove, at the... At the 
he was saying, if you want to read your kids some really good stories, he said, read them Bible stories. Read out of the Old Testament. Read things that happened back there. And this is a case in point. This, is, this story, when we start looking at it, just a little bit of the details, becomes a very intriguing story. It's a bigger-than-life story. There's things that so often when we read, we just take them for granted. Well, let's start looking at it. Abraham had 318 trained, as this translated to King James, to protect his possessions. Now, it doesn't say that. It just says he has 318 men. Now, how would we say, why would we say that that's the case? Well, trained, and you'll notice italicized servants, occurs only here in the Old Testament. The theological word book of the Old Testament identifies this as armed retainers, which we would call militia. Armed retainers, it's like hiring a security force. So, okay, this man has 318 men. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of security people. That's a whole bunch of them. That's like a, it's a little militia is what it is, and I think that's why we should call it that. Now, think about it for a moment. In Abram's time, Palestine was, was just sparsely populated by families of the earth, as it says back in Genesis 12, 3, because he said, you, he said you'll will be a blessing to the families of the earth. Well, families of the earth, that, they were family clans. They were small individual units, and... Because it was so sparsely populated, you didn't have governments, you didn't have police force, you didn't have standing armies, you didn't have any way to protect people. Now, here you have a man who has enormous wealth. This man is extremely wealthy. And so he has 318 men trained as a militia or a police force. Why? To protect his possessions. If you remember in the book of Job what happened, in, in the first chapter of Job, people came in... Bands of raiders came in, which were common in that time, and they stole his camels, they stole all of his, all of his possessions, everything that they could take, and that was common. Well, this man was not taking any chances. He had 318 trained militia to protect himself. Now, that also says something else. Do you realize that he has to pay the wages and living expenses of these 318 men? Now, think about that for a moment. How much would it cost to take care of 318 men who may have been family men? So this man must have had unbelievable wealth by our comparison today. And he had to have something to protect himself. Now, Abraham, or Abram as he's still known, was not a military man. Now, he did have these 318 men that were, that were militia for him. Now, I don't know that he trained them because there's no indication that he did. He probably hired these people, recruited them. You can do that today. You can hire mercenaries today. There are people in this country that were military men that did hire out as mercenaries to go places and fight, which I think would be an interesting way to make a living, but not a very safe way. You may not come back. But so, Abraham is not a military man, but four kings who capture Lot are. And this is, what, this is why we say that God prepared Abram by the capture and rescue of Lot. Now, let's go back to Genesis 14 for a moment. We should look at that rather than just say it uh, and assume you remember the story. It's a good story. And I, I personally, I'll tell you, folks, uh, I love listening to Bible history. We listen to it on the cell phone app and we follow along. And Bible history is fascinating because when you see what happens, what you're seeing is not great men and great women of God. You're seeing a great God who takes care of his children. That's what you're really seeing. And you can see how it happens behind the scene how they bumble and stumble. And sometimes the people of God are, are not any smarter than their enemies. They bumble and they stumble, but God has to protect them. But that's the thrilling part when you read the Old Testament. Read the history and see how God protects his own over and over again. 
read about King David if you think there's any doubt about that. All the things that poor guy went through before he became king when Saul was hunting him like he was a dog. Uh, okay, Genesis 14, starting at verse 8. Well, let's see. Okay, and there went out the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, the same as Zoar, and they joined in battle with them in the vale of, of Siddim, with Shedaleamor, the king of Elam, with Tidal, king of nations, with Amraphel, king of Shinar, with Arioch, king of Elessar, four kings with five. And the valley of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, uh, fled and fell there. And they, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they, that would be the five kings, with Shedalaim were leading the, the pack, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah with all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. And there came one that escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the, in the plain of Mamre, with the, <clears throat> of, uh, Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Anor, and they, these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained, now his trained servants, this is the militia, 318 men, and pursued them to Dan. And that's in, in Genesis 14, 14, that's the trained that we talked about that we would call militia. He took his militia and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Now, that's quite a ways to pursue them, by the way. That's somewhere in the neighborhood, I believe, I looked it up uh, from, well, from Jerusalem, it's like 125 miles, but from where, where he was, it was probably about 50 to 75 miles, something like that, he pursued them. So this was not a small thing. This took some, this took some time. How long? I'm not exactly sure. And it says, and he also, and he brought back all the goods, and he also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So now, of course, you have the interesting story about, uh, about this uh, Melchizedek that comes in. We're not going to talk about him. But so here you have these men that he fought with. And these were men who had some impressive victories. Now, he's not a military man. Abraham is not known for his military. And because, you remember, he's the guy that gave away his wife twice to save his own skin. Does he sound like he'd be a military leader to you? I think he probably wasn't that way. And so when you look and see what happened, let's see now, I put reference. Okay, Genesis, if you look back at Genesis in the 14th chapter, at the first few verses up to about verse 5 and 6, we should have read, read there first. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elessar, Shedlaimor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of... Uh, Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, and Sheb, uh, Shemember, the king of Zoboim, Zo, Zeboim, excuse me, and the king of Bela, which is Zor. And these were joined together in Sidon, which is the Salt Sea. And it says, in 12 years they served Shedaliamor, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Now there's going to be a reason they're going to rebel. You'll see why. Because Shedaliamor and company are out fighting. And so they're not in the area. So they're going to, these four kings are going to rebel. In the fourteenth year came Shedelah Amor and the kings which were with him and smote the Rephaim and Ashtorah and Karnim, the Zuzims and Ham and the Emims and Shevath Kiriathim and the Horites and Mount Seir unto Elparan, which is by the wilderness. Now, 
you stop there for a moment, you say, okay, these guys are pretty impressive. Well, what's the big deal? If you look at your notes, the Rephaim, Zumim, Emim, and Horites are all the giants that you have back in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. And they were called back there Nephilim, is, one, is the Hebrew name for them. Now, we find out that they're also, these Nephilim are also called Rephaim in Deuteronomy, and we'll look there in a second. But, so these individuals are these giants. Now, how big were they? Well, we do have in here that one of them, much later, who was one of, was called the Remnant, had a bed that was uh, 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. Now, why would you have a 13 and a half, why would you have a California King Plus there, Pastor? Probably if a guy has a 13 and a half foot bed, I'm going to guess he's at least 12 foot tall, maybe, conservatively, maybe more. How would you like to face off with a guy that's 12 feet tall in your, in David's time or before men were like five foot tall and he's 12 feet tall? Kind of a mismatch, you might say. I, I wouldn't want to try it. Now, these individuals, if you look over at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 through 10 and 11, you'll see what we're, we're getting at. These individuals are not known in history. They're blocked out, and we find out later it's said that God caused their memory to perish. And it's interesting that because some men of science have done the same thing. They didn't like the fact that they had these huge humanoid-type beings when evolution said they shouldn't have been there. So they destroyed evidence at the Smithsonian, which is rather interesting to know. But in Deuteronomy 2, it says the, the Emim dwelt, and you saw that's some of the people that they defeated. The Emim dwelt in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Now the Anakim are a, a family of individuals. They're known as the sons of Anak or also Anakim, which is the plural of Anak, Anakim, uh, which were also accounted as Rephaim, as the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. And then you're looking as the Horim also dwelt in Seir. So you had, you had the Emim, the Anakim, which were of one family, the, and they're known as, and then you have the Horim. And you also have some others back here. You find that you have the Zumim, Zuzim, as they're called. And uh, that's out of Deuteronomy 2.20. If you're still in Deuteronomy 2, if you look down a little bit further, you find out that there's this group of individuals. And it's a, it's very... It's a very intriguing reading, and, and people that don't study these things or deny the existence of these are missing a, a very fascinating piece of history and a very important piece of history. <clears throat> and verse 20 says, That was the counter land of, of Rephaim, giants. Translated giants, it's the Hebrew Rephaim. Giants dwelt there in time of old. The Ammonites called them Zanzumim. Now, that's also shortened to Zumim, or Zuzim, rather. It's been shortened to that. A, a people great and tall, a great and many, and tall as the Anakim. But who destroyed them? The Lord destroyed them before them, and they, dwelt, and they succeeded them, and they dwelt in their stead. So the Ammonites had to drive them out of their land to get there, these giants. Now, humanly speaking, you'd look at these individuals, and you find... These individuals are so tall, there's no way that you could defeat them. In fact, we mentioned this, I think, last time, but if you look over at the, at the ninth chapter about these individuals, the one clan that was in the land of Israel of all places, and you, know, you might wonder, well, why were they in the land of Israel? Why were they there? Well, 
Deuteronomy chapter 9, the first two verses, Moses is speaking. He's going to die at the end of this book, and this is right at the very end of his life, and he gives this discourse over a period of, I don't know how long it would take him to, to speak all the words that are in here, but he did speak them before his death. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. Now, that sounds like hyperbole, fenced up to heaven. Well, wait a minute now. A people great and tall, the children of the Anakim. Now, please notice that Anakims is crazy. Anakim is plural. To put an S on it, you don't need to. That's, it's already plural. Anakims is, is kind of a redundancy. It's like plural of a plural. It's just Anakim. I don't know why they did that, but I guess they figured that you wouldn't know it was plural otherwise. It says, Of whom you've heard said, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Now, that wasn't to go up to him and greet him and say, hey, how are you doing? Can I, let's, let's talk about the score in, in a baseball game. Uh, who can stand before them? Who, who, could, who could face up to them? Who could fight them? Who could stand before them? So if God hadn't destroyed these individuals, these, these quasi-humanoids, Israel couldn't have done anything about it. Now, there's something that's not in your notes that probably we should have put in there. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 6 just for a moment. And uh, you need to understand something about these individuals. In Genesis 6, just so you know what we're talking about, we're not talking about humans. These were not men that had unusual height, and they were 6 foot 6, 6 foot 9, 7 foot tall. The Rephaim were bigger than that, believe me. They were a lot bigger than that. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 6, beginning at the first verse, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all they chose. Now the sons of God, I don't want to get too far into this, but the sons of God, that expression is only used about four or five times in the Old Testament, that exact expression. And it's used twice here, and it's used twice in the book of Job. And in Job, there is no question about it when it says the sons of God come into heaven before God, and Satan comes among them. It's talking about spirit beings. There's no doubt here. Now, I don't know why people don't want to believe it. Maybe it sounds too fantastical, but it's true. The sons of God took, saw the daughters of men, they were fair, and they took wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, it doesn't say, he's not saying that's how long mankind's going to live, but he's saying, I'm not going to deal with these people here that are doing this for any for 120. I'm giving them 120 years to straighten up, and they didn't, and the flood came. And 100, so this is 120 years before the flood. But now notice what it says: there were giants. Now this is the word nephilim. The two are equated, and we put it. We mentioned it in. We showed you that in Deuteronomy 2:10 and 11. Nephilim and Rephaim refer to the same beings. Just two different names for the same beings. So, these are men that are extremely tall. Now, notice what it says. There were giants in, those, in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children of them, the same became mighty men who were of old, men of renown, men of the name. These were the big shots. These were giants. When we saw Og was the king of Bashan, the ideal king to lead you to war. You've got a 12-foot-tall king leading you to war. You're going to feel pretty tall in the saddle behind a man like that, or 
a so-called man like that. But you'll notice there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Now, just just briefly, I want to tell you this, and if you want to know, if you have questions more about it, ask me afterwards and I can maybe help you a little more. But there's two reasons. You see, there were giants in the earth in those days. This is before the flood and also after that, which is after the flood. So they're here for two times, and there's two distinct reasons for it. Before the flood, there was one thing Satan wanted to do. If you remember what God told Satan back in the third chapter of Genesis, he told him something that's, that burned. When, when Adam sinned, Satan thought, I got revenge. I got what I wanted. I ruined God's program. I've ruined the human race. They're ruined. They're fallen. They're sinners. There's no hope for them. Well, God did too put a double whammy on Satan because God provided salvation for the, the human race. Did God provide salvation for, for Satan when he fell? Oh, he didn't. The highest being of all has no hope of salvation, yet these little puny things down here, God's provided a way of salvation. You think that didn't burn Satan? Think about it. Satan thought he had victory, and he finds out that, no, you didn't have victory. There's a way out for some of these people. Now, Satan doesn't know how many are going to be saved, but there is a way out, and Satan doesn't have that. But the, probably the worst thing in there is when you look at what is said, just to, and it's... Uh, if you look at verse 14, and the Lord said, Genesis 3, 14, and the Lord said unto the serpent, because you've done this. Now he's talking to the animal that Satan used. The serpent, the shining one, was a very magnificent being, apparently. He said he was the most subtle of all in verse 1 of the chapter 3. But he said, because you've done this, you're cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, and he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall crush, bruise thy head. It's actually, we find out from Romans 16, 20. You can make a note that that is, he's going to crush the head of Satan or crush the head of the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. Now, is he talking about the snake? The first part, verse 14, yeah, he's going to go on his belly and eat dust. But is there going to be enmity between the two and is somehow... Her male seed going to crush a serpent? What is it talking about? It's talking about the one who used the serpent. It's directed to Satan. And so what does that tell you? That the woman is going to have a male descendant who's going to destroy Satan. Now do you understand why we have the Rephaim in the picture? You see, if they intermarry with the human race, the bloodline is polluted and there's no longer a truly human person. There's no longer, if you, if you doubt that, you know, we mentioned this last time, but let's take a, just a moment to go there. I want you to see it again, just to be sure that you understand. In, in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 26, just so you know this, so you know we're not making this up. 